Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. In this episode, I am asking Lavelle all about his recent trip to the Adventure Racing World Championships in South Africa. Uh, I was following along vicariously via Instagram and Facebook as much as I could. It seems like an absolutely ridiculous adventure that he's been on. Uh, and lucky us, we got to hear all about it. So as usual, Laval's a terrific storyteller, and I appreciate him making some time to uh, shed some light on uh, this part of his life too. That's one more incredible adventure that he's uh, out having. And uh, suddenly I think he's he's probably going to be in a couple of more adventure races we'll get to hear about pretty soon. Also an upcoming trip that he has. We also start off the episode talking about taking some uh, inventory of your time and uh, carefully considering how much time you might have left to do some of the things uh, that you love. We both think that it's an important way to sort of frame uh, the way that you look at your time and your relationship with it. And uh, it's, um, it's a way of thinking that has definitely gotten me off the couch a number of times. So hopefully you gain some value out of that. We are continuing our power meter uh, contest giveaway as well as heart rate monitors from 4i Technologies. We love 4i, one of the coolest companies out there in cycling tech. Uh, so we have a couple of power meters and a couple of heart rate monitors to give away. The way to enter those contests is to listen to the episode and then drop us a note with the answer to the question. The question for this episode is what South African province did the race that Laval just did start in? So what South African province is the, what's the name of the South African province where Laval's adventure race began. If you want to enter the contest more than once, go back to the previous two episodes. We're going to run this in four episodes total. So this is the third episodes one and two of the contest are the last two that we had recorded. That's with Tyler Hamilton and Nat Gillis. So if you want to re-listen to those and shoot us the answers to those questions, you can do that as well. You'll be entered to win. So the episode after this, we're going to do it one more time and then we're going to pick some winners. Looking forward to hearing from you. The best way to send us answers are either on Instagram, so, so the Adventure Audio Instagram page, or to adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. Either of those work. On to this episode, and we will be back soon. I got back from Istanbul on, uh, probably got home around four o'clock, and the next morning I was driving to Edmonton for three days in the sim in uh, Edmonton so it was just go 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 is that uh are you going to be in Edmonton more often than Montreal or both uh no it was my own training um I train on the oh. the 737 700 so I fly two different types 737 3 400 and a 737 700 that we're now going to we're not going to Montreal anymore we go to we go to Dallas now well okay yeah so uh I go to Dallas next week for for training some guys down there. So, yeah, but uh, I'm not complaining. Uh, it's going to be nice to get down to Texas during the Canadian winter. I was shoveling snow this morning. How about you? So, uh, yeah, getting everybody's car scraped off. and Yeah, and then um, I'm going to put the studded tires on my commuting bike today. So it's, uh, yeah, I was kind of hoping I could get through November. Just for our listeners, um, November has been pretty amazing here and. uh Western Canada, I missed the first few days of it, but uh, we had 13 degrees Celsius last week. And now it's, I, know. I don't know what it would yeah. be. What, what do you think it is right now? Minus five or something? Minus eight. Yeah. So it's it's still nice, but um, we certainly have had some uh, incredible weather. We we thought we were going to get away without minus 20. And we'll see if we can do that. Oh, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. We got, you know, four months of it now, but that's okay. So we need to. So you're back from. Uh, 
Yeah. Sorry to cut you off there. You're back from Hawaii. How, how was that? Where were you? Uh, we were on Maui. In, and uh, and what's in, update in us on how Maui looks? So we didn't go to West Maui. We kind of we kind of didn't want to, and I think it's been relatively strongly suggested still that you don't really spend a lot of time in the Lahaina area. However, I could see it from the air when we were landing, and uh, it looked. I mean, it looked like the Lahaina was mostly gone. Yeah. Wow. So pretty de- pretty depressing. There's a huge black scorched mark where most of the Lahaina was. Uh, which it's, uh, if you've been to Hawaii, if you've been to Maui, you know that Lahaina is a very cool, was a very cool historic little town. Um, uh, yeah, it's, that's, it's terrible. Um, it is, however, a relatively very small part of Maui. Um, and, uh, and tourism, Maui, the governor of Hawaii have all encouraged people to be traveling, not just to to Hawaii, but to, uh, but to Maui as well. So tourism is obviously, critical there so yeah we were very very happy to be back um for for me it was it was a break really i mean it was like a training break i didn't do didn't do a whole lot like i jogged every day but that's that was it so the way down in volume so i'll i'll count that actually as a little bit of a break and a reset Um, yeah great it was great it's great lots of family time absolutely perfect perfect hawaiian weather you know you wake up and it's like 22 and then it gets to 27 and it's just like beautiful every day on repeat so it is a special place but you know mother nature uh made it tiny and uh and hard to get to so that's how that's how perfect things are they're usually yeah. small yeah yeah it sounds ideal especially living uh, where we live in this time of year it's nice to get away yeah totally totally and we usually go in the uh tree or historically we've gone in the spring like february march yep. or end of winter i should say which I always loved because you kind of grind through winter in Canada and then you get this like final treat and then you get back and then you're only a couple of weeks away from it getting nice where now I've cut, now I'm staring down the rest of, uh, the rest of winter, but our kids had a, had a short, uh, a short winter break here. So they had a little break off school. So we squeezed it in there, but, um, time marches on our kids are getting bigger and that's, that might be the last time that we're able to pull something like that off. Our daughter's going to be in grade 12 next year. So the stakes are high. Can't really miss school. Um, it's going to be, you know, applying to universities, that kind of thing. So it's that, that might be, that might be a wrap on that, that format of that trip for us. But, uh, but we've been, I think we've been there. I think we've been like 12 times. So we're, we've been very, very lucky to wow. get there that much as a family. Yeah. The five of us. So yeah, it was great. You know, it's interesting. You talk about, uh, you know, us spinning around the sun and time flying and the kids are getting older. And I heard this thing the other day about <clears throat> how often you're going to see your kids once they leave home. Right. And so if you're lucky enough that your kids are living in the city where you live in, or, or at least nearby, you're going to see them quite often. But if your kids are living remotely, you generally see them, uh, during, uh, for us in the Canadian holiday time. So that'll be like Thanksgiving, which is in, um, uh, October for us in Canada, uh, Christmas, and maybe Easter. And if you look at how many times you're going to see them, let's say your parents are 65 or 70 years old. If you look at how many times your parents are going to see you or now vice versa, when your kids grow up, how many times are going to see you? If it's, if it's four times a year or three times a year for the next 10 to 20 years, that's not very many visits. No, it's not. Jesse Itzler talks a lot about actually doing the math on stuff like that, right? 
I think that's where I heard it. Do the math. Yeah, it's uh, I know like some people are like, oh, why would you think about things that way? That's morbid or whatever. But, you know, I think understanding the math and, and knowing that stuff creates a sense of urgency and spurs us on to do a little more or dig a little deeper for creating some family time or some trips or, uh, you know, getting meeting for lunch more often or whatever it is, because if you're not paying attention to it, it's just like it's just like sand slipping through your fingers, right? Yeah. And then, and also how, how many more summers do you have left? How many more, you know, expeditions or whatever, whatever the big things are in your life left. And, and that's why we don't want to put them off. And yeah, Jesse does talk about that. He talks about how many more summers do you have? And, and I think that's a real, a real impetus to, to not delaying, not putting things off until tomorrow, because, you know, you may not, you may not have tomorrow. And, um, um, I mean, I'm not trying to be grim, but it's, you know, you, you hope for the best, but you prepare for the worst. And it's, it's, there's that, uh, that famous Greek, uh, uh, philosopher, philosopher Archilochus, who said that, um, um, he doesn't say this exactly, but when the shit hits the fan, you don't fall back on your hopes, dreams, aspiration, and prayers. You fall back on your level of preparation and training. So you fall to that level. And I, and I think if you take that in a broader sense, that's a good way to look at life that, um, you want to, uh, you want to prepare so that you want to be prepared so that you're always ready to go and you can go on an adventure, right? And it doesn't, and obviously we're talking about adventure audio, but I mean, on a vacation, on a trip to see your kids, on a walk or whatever. And I, I think that's important that we keep that to, and, and it's easy to lose that right now in the Northern hemisphere this time of the year, we've got low uh, sunlight days are super short. It's dark by, you know, four thirty or 5 PM. And, um, it's easy to lose that impetus to, to get moving and get outside. Very, very. Yeah. I, I definitely try and just appreciate how fleeting it all is. I don't know what's happened to me. That's, I guess it's, I guess it's middle age. I guess it's just my, my existential crisis, but all of it, you know, even I, I've been thinking about like how many seasons of hockey can I still watch my boys for, right? They're going to, yeah. my, my, my middle kid is boy. And then, so it's girl, boy, boy in our family. And, uh, they both play hockey. I love watching them play, but Hudson's, uh, 14. So he'll probably play till he's 18. And then he will hopefully go on to play, you know, in, as he works and is on some rec team when he's older, but he doesn't have a future playing hockey, which is fine. But, um, you know, four seasons, I get to watch him for four more seasons. So it makes every single game that much more important to me. Like if he plays 35 games a season, I've got like 140 hockey games I get to watch him for. And then it's done. That's it. So do the math, do the math, do the, do the Jesse math. Yeah. You're, uh, you know, life is this long and this much of it is with your kids when they're small, right? Yeah, my brother shared that statistic with me that uh, by the time your child hits 14, you've spent 80% of the time you'll ever spend with them already. And I have a 16 and 14-year-old. So my 10-year-old, <laughs> I spent three hours building it. <laughs> just with a lot. Just like, you know, just, <laughs> it's like, whoa, whoa. It's, yeah, it's going quickly. So, yeah. I love it. I think it's, I love it. it's important. It's important. And it, it makes me appreciate the mundane a little bit more because uh, I'll miss it. So, you know, when it's not there, it's some of the routine or scurrying them off to school and stuff like that. So it's hard, easy, very easy to not see the forest through the trees sometimes when you're 
a busy parent. So hope, yeah. hopefully that resonates with some people. But while I was kicking it in Hawaii and taking it relatively easy, you've been uh, doing the exact opposite. <laughs> and, uh, you've been on quite an adventure, but what uh, what got you sent off to, um, well, t- I mean, you take it from here. Let me know. Uh, I need to hear all about this this trip. I've been sure. along vicariously, but you got an invite to do something pretty cool and jumped right at the chance, right? Yeah, some team was crazy enough to ask me to race with them in the uh, Adventure Racing World Championships. And um, I had raced in the 90s and the early 2000s a lot in adventure racing, both solo and on team events. Um, And then adventure racing sort of petered out and I got into doing other things. And, um, And then I was asked two years ago to race in Expedition Canada. And expedition length races are generally a week long. And an expedition or an adventure race is um, a team of four normally, uh, mixed gender. So uh, the the vast majority of teams are three males and one female, and you all have to race together. You don't you don't uh, divvy up the events. You just race together. You're as fast as your slowest person. Everybody has to cross the line together, and uh, it's a continuous wilderness. Um, um, adventure using, uh, 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 travel by foot. So trekking slash trail running, uh, mountain biking. And then there's always a water component as well as abseiling or, or repelling. So I was asked by, uh, uh, one of our previous guests at our podcast, uh, Natalie Long, who, um, organized Expedition Canada two years ago, actually in the past couple of years in, um, the Okanagan to race on her team which I was incredibly flattered by. And uh, her team had uh, devolved to the point where only one original member was left on the team because of things like injuries and uh, work commitments and family commitments, et cetera. So uh, she asked me to come in and uh, parachute into this team. And then um, maybe a month and a half prior to uh, the start of the race, she had to drop out due to business commitments and uh, we had to sort of rebuild the team and Natalie picked a really good team. I had nothing to do with choosing the team. I only knew one member of uh, my team, um, Ben Kwiatkowski, and uh, it was like going on the ultimate blind date. We uh, spoke uh, once a week or twice a week via uh, like a Teams or a Zoom call type of thing, going through equipment, going through tech. Yep, the whole team. Uh, they're all BC based um, and um, British Columbia based and we... Uh, got to know each other that way. I knew Ben, but I didn't know the other uh, two, uh, Mary Pierre and uh, Dave. And anyway, yeah, we uh, first time we met was uh, in this uh, area of the eastern Cape of uh, South Africa, and um, it was it was interesting. I mean, to to think about uh, not knowing somebody and then putting yourself into uh, extremists for for 900 and some K of racing through Africa was it's a, it's an amazing test of, of teamwork, of, um, of getting along with people of conflict resolution, etc. a trust. Um, but it worked. Um, we all got along great. We had a, we had a, I, I'm going to say we had a really good time. We really suffered. And, uh, so yeah, we flew into, uh, South Africa and the province we were in was called Eastern Cape province. Everybody knows where Cape town is. In Cape Town is in South Africa. Everybody knows where Johannesburg is. We were uh, to the east of uh, Cape Town, 
about an hour and a half flight in a city uh, we flew into called Port Elizabeth. I flew in there around um, October 14th, and we started getting ready for an October 19th start to this uh, race. Now, the race is long. Um, you're racing in um, uh, coastal uh, dune areas. You're racing, you're racing in desert, and you're racing in uh, mountains, very mountainous country, which I was very shocked about that Eastern Cape was, um, was as, as uh, mountainous and tough as it was. So um, I'll give you some of the, the, I'll give you the, the leg lengths. Now, for, for people that don't know adventure racing, you start, there were 109 teams of four. We all, it's a mass start. And we started at the bottom of a grassy hill, a very long grassy hill, almost looked like a ski hill uh, on a very hot day. Uh, let me backtrack. We got on the buses at five o'clock in the morning. We didn't know where we were going. All the navigation is done by, uh, map and compass and you only get the maps just before you start so we were tre we we're driven out into the middle of nowhere um we we got to a point where we assembled our mountain bikes um so our, your mountain bikes are in a box everybody has the same type of box it has to be the same size the same basic construction your mountain bikes are disassembled in a box we all got our bikes together we left our mountain bikes on racks kind of like you'd see in a transition area of a triathlon so you've got hundreds of mountain bikes along this river beside these sand dunes in Africa, South Africa. Then we get into the bus and we keep on going for another couple of hours. And we end up somewhere. Uh, it's a hot day. We're in the middle of nowhere. And we all line up. There's this beautiful start set up. And we go running straight uphill, like steep uphill. And uh, off we went. So that first um, section of the race was a 56 kilometer trail run slash trek. Now you're carrying a backpack, you're carrying mandatory gear, you have to find water along the way. And uh, so we were getting water from cattle troughs. So we would find a, a cattle trough, we'd get water from there, of course we'd filter it and treat it and then keep on going. So you're all self-sufficient, you carry your own food. We didn't carry any sleeping bags or anything, we just carried a uh, bivy sack and uh, an emergency blanket for sort of our sleeping gear. I eventually started to carry a very, very uh, small piece of um, a foam that I would sleep on if I needed to sleep, which we did. And then for people who are uninitiated to adventure racing, it's from the start to the finish is nonstop. You're just going constantly. You decide where you're going to sleep. You decide how you're going to get from checkpoint to checkpoint. There's, there's, dozens and dozens of checkpoints you have to navigate to and when you get to a checkpoint you have to you have a passport you have to punch it something that's on that checkpoint so they know you've been there and you carry a gps tracker so they know that you've completed the course so and you just i was going to ask about that so it, it is um my understanding is that it is a, it's a stage race in the sense that the disciplines are staged but the timing is not a stage race the timing is yes as a stage race would refer to ending every night and then starting the next day where this thing is just a clock starts and you've got, uh, what was it? It was nine days to uh, complete the race. And, uh, they advertised as 840 kilometers. It came out, all the teams were between 980 and 950 K, um, the length of the race. Yeah, it was, it was big. Um, so you start out and we're wearing, uh, we're wearing, um, orienteering pants. So they're like, they're a very thin sort of a, a capri or three quarter length pant that protects you from getting torn to shreds by 
thorns. Every tree in Africa tries to kill you. And then you wear shin pads. So you're wearing these orienteering shin pads so that when you're running through the bush and you're hitting thorns, you're not shredding your legs. So immediately after about, I don't know, three to five K running, we were out of this grassland area and into thorns. And we have to navigate through these thorn bushes and get these checkpoints. So the first, the first trek, it was 56 K you get to your bikes. Oh, on the way to that trek, which was interesting. We transitioned from desert country and brush country to sand dunes. Uh, sorry, to running along a beach correction. We ran for 22 K along the ocean on this beach. Um, it was incredible. Huge sand dunes to get down to the water. You're running along this beach. It's now nighttime. At one point, we were running along, and we looked beside us, and there was a giant dead whale right beside us on the beach. Yeah, just incredible. It was incredible until the until the whale was behind us, and the, the following wind was blowing its rotting whale smell at us for about 5K. And then you go into these high, this high sand dune country, uh, back down along the beach and you have to cross, you have to swim two rivers at night and you don't have any, you don't have any swimming gear. You don't have any life preservers. You just, you wade out into the water, carrying your pack above your head. When it gets too deep, you're swimming. You have to make sure nothing gets like, you don't get your mandatory gear wet or, or it's going to be useless. But we swam these two rivers. Uh, I was submerged under the water trying to swim across. It's nighttime. You're wearing headlamps. You're, you're freezing cold. It's it's surprisingly cold there at night. It would get down to three degrees at night. And then we uh, you're wet. You come running under the water. You transition onto your mountain bike, and we were off on a 181k mountain bike. Um, you do this. You do this mountain bike. You you jump off your mountain bike. You switch into your trekking gear, and now you do an 80k trek slash trail run. Um, and then you do a. Uh, I think I've got. I miss one here. There's a 10, oh, there's a 10 K transition. So another 10, so 90 K of trekking. And then you get to this whitewater river and, uh, you've got kayaks there. You jump in your kayaks and you do a 65 K whitewater paddle down this muddy sewage filled, um, African river with baboons running beside barking at you. And uh, we capsized Ben and I. So it was Ben and I in one kayak and uh, Dave and Marie-Pierre, uh, MP, in another kayak. And we capsized six times, Ben and I. They didn't capsize once. So we we were warned, don't, get, don't even get the water on your face in this river. It was so dirty. And we were swimming six times, Ben and I. So we were convinced that we were going to have some kind of strange disease. And we got because we were covered in injuries from running into cactus. And right. you got blisters and cuts. And anyway, we, we uh, went from... Being hypothermic on the river to boiling hot and temperatures were in the high 30s. Um, then we did a 3K trek carrying our kayaking gear. Then we jumped on the mountain bikes and did a 224K mountain bike, uh, which is where I crashed, but we can talk about that later. Then we did a 64-kilometer trek slash run and then a 124K mountain bike. And then we finished it off with a 32K coastal trek uh, to the finish line. And we went from probably 38 pushing 40 degrees celsius to three degrees celsius and driving winds and 100 100 kilometer an hour winds like survival stuff on the top of a, a mountain and it was absolutely spectacular how did the how does how do the mountain bikes get from point to point is there a, so the organizers will take yep okay. yep 
Yeah, good question. So when you get off of that trek, for example, when I said like uh, 180K, 81K mountain bike, and then you transition to an 80K trek, so you have to disassemble your bike, which you get really good at, put it in the box, fasten up the box, carry it to the back of a, a loading area. They load it into a truck and off you go. So, um, yeah, you're continuously assembling and disassembling your bikes every time you see them. Um, yeah, so transitions are really important. On, uh, and at that time, you're trying to shove food in your face. Um, sometimes, depending on the time, we would sleep at a transition. And then sleeping was uh, interesting. We would, um, you know, you'd be going for close to 30 hours at a time with no sleep, just continuously racing. And we would get to a point where we agreed based on when the sun was going to rise, for example. We always tried to plan our sleep so we could lay down and wake up as the sun was coming up because it was so cold at night. And we would just find places to lay. You'd lay in the rocks, you'd lay under some branches, you'd lay in the ditch, you'd lay wherever and at, at that state of exhaustion you can fall asleep in seconds and take a 10 minute sleep or a 30 minute sleep in the middle of nowhere wake up hypothermic and get going again with your wet feet and yeah it was it, it's an amazing um test of human endurance these races wow so and you guys obviously you made it yeah uh 40 teams finished the race out of 109 wow. um yeah and um we came 23rd. Well, that's what we were when we crossed the finish line, 23rd. I haven't seen the official results yet, but 23rd is uh, where we came. So, yeah, we were happy with that considering it was our first date and uh, we had never raced together. Well, that, um, what What is that? That's a 37% finish rate or something like that? That's low. Yeah, it was, it was fairly low. It's a hard race. It, it, like, it was shockingly hard and, um, and shockingly beautiful. I had no idea that the uh, scenery in the Eastern Cape province, it was, Pete, I'm telling you, at times we'd sit there and you'd almost get emotional how stunning and grand this country is. Like it was, and I've been around, as you know, this could be one of the most beautiful areas I've ever seen in my life from wild coastlines, towering dunes, huge mountains. You have you had every type of landscape from evergreen type forests to jungle to desert to flat plains and prairies. It was really a good hard race. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good hard, 183 hours we raced for. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good solid workout with some injuries. How much do you think you slept in the 183 hours? Well, interesting it's it's there's a lot of stories behind that so we were going for this one checkpoint i think it was checkpoint number 36 was on the was the highest point of the race on top of this mountain you're above tree line and uh, it was howling wind over 100 kilometers an hour and driving rain and very cold and so uh we were uh, going up this steep mountain to the very top where there was a checkpoint and um we got to the checkpoint and you could barely stand the wind was so so powerful and we had to we had to navigate along this ridge for many, many hours after that. There's no place to shelter. It's uh, we're going to be doing this all night till morning, and we decided that it was it was too dangerous. If somebody would have sprained an ankle, had a minor injury, we, we we wouldn't have survived the night up there with those winds and those temperatures. So we we dropped back down, and we had seen on the map that there was a a farm or a ranch or a hunting camp, like a hunt. Uh, they have um, 
uh, game preserves in South Africa where you can go and hunt. It's all fenced off and there's like a lodge and that type of thing. We'd seen one many kilometers away, so we decided to sort of evacuate to that point. The weather was so bad. We were very hypothermic. Uh, even running, we were hypothermic. Um, the only time you'd sort of uh, dip out of hypothermia would, would be when you're running uphill. And we just hammered for hours and hours to this, um, towards this hunting camp. I mean, we were running down this one road in this, in this, this tempest and you could barely see like just your headlamp was just rain and wind and mud. And anyways, we stumbled upon this hunting camp and, uh, it was like, it's hard to explain. It was almost like a ski lodge. We walked in. And the owners didn't expect anybody to show up there. There were already a couple of teams there that had used this as shelter. And we got into this hunting lodge. Um, you know, there was like a leopard mounted on the wall and zebra skins and and a bar and a TV going because it was during the World Cup of rugby. So everybody was watching rugby. And there's only a couple of people there except these muddy, freezing cold erasers. And these people took us in. I think eventually six teams ended up there. They fed us. They offered us booze, which, I, well, I saw some British teams taking some booze, but nobody else did. And uh, we were, they had a big roaring fireplace, no heat in the place, but a fireplace. And we were all trying to dry our gear. And they even gave us beds. So we slept there that night. And the reason we did that is because the way the timing would have worked, we would have ended up getting to the river. And then there's a dark zone on the river where you can't kayak at night because it's white water too dangerous so you'd have to pull out at 7 p.m and just camp on the shore and this river that it was very difficult to find a place to camp but we figured be to recharge we'd sleep in this hunting camp and then continue the next morning so that was a that was a, a decision that our team captain ben who's a very experienced racer um decided on which is a good call so we had a very we had six hours of in bed sleep there dried our gear and then got up the next morning and off we went again and kept on trucking so um that must have felt like an incredible luxury oh yeah it's 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 amazing what uh, six hours can do but it's even amazing what 40 minutes can do i remember at one point we we were very cold very very cold and we we're we we're out in this desert flat desert country and we were sleeping under thorn bushes and i think we slept for about an hour and 45 minutes and it felt like we'd slept eight hours other than the fact you wake up and you're so frozen that no, you you got to start running right away. So, yeah, it was a it was a it was an exercise in sleep deprivation for sure. And um, but yeah, it would, uh, it was it's a it's a whole different world these expedition length races and um, and pushing yourself. And you had a mountain bike accident. Oh yeah, yeah on the on the two hundred twenty four k mountain bike. I think at that point from our last sleep we've been going for twenty five or twenty six and a half hours, and um, it would comparable to north america be like being on logging roads up in these high mountains and um i was coming down a hill on a, on the bike gentle slope r rough and i just was get got a gel out was eating a gel and took my hand off the handlebar and it was just you know, i'd done it a thousand times during the race but next thing i know i was like like in the ground in the rocks and i could just feel my face soaked in blood and i'd uh, i'd cut my uh my right eye around my eye here um two cuts landed on my knee my patella i still think i may have a cracked patella i got to get it checked because it's been bugging me lately and then um so ben who's a paramedic just immediately went to work and and i and he's like okay you got to go to the hospital i said whoa whoa because that means i'm out of the race and i said no no hang on a second 
And uh, I said, come on, just patch it up with butterfly bandages and just go. He goes, it's so close to the core of your eye and you've got probably four days of mud, sweat, tears, sand. Um, you, uh, we, we've got to get you to the hospital. So long story short, he patched me up. He took a picture. Uh, he cracked open the, you're not allowed to have cell phones or GPS, but in this case, because we're injured, he cracked over the cell phone to let the race organizers know that we we're going to evacuate to a hospital. So he was able to take a picture of me. When I saw the picture, like within seconds, I had a bag of blood under my eye. I think you've seen the picture. And um, so we uh, kept on biking. We had to bike between 40 to 50K to the next village, which was, well, the only village that was on this route. Super remote country. This place called Jensenville. And your face is just throbbing. No, it wasn't that bad, actually. No, it wasn't that bad. Um, and uh, we, we got to this uh, town. And the plan was that our, we had a media guy, so a guy that was following us around, like meeting us at the TAs and taking videos of us and drone footage and stuff. And we were going to use him to get me to a hospital. But we got, um, luckily on, on his attempt to get to us, he couldn't get there because the road was washed up by a river. And he um, he met us in Jensenville, but the, the, the guy, the race director happened to roll in just at that second, uh, Stefan Muller, and he said, uh, he said, what's your plan? I said, uh, I, he's a doctor too. I said, I guess we're going to go to, to Port Elizabeth, which is about an hour and a half away on driving, which means I'm out of the race. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, just, there's a hospital here, I'm sure. So he went and asked some locals if there was a hospital and about a kilometer away, there was a hospital. So the race was back on. So we got on our bikes, we rode to the hospital, this little tiny hospital in this little small village and uh, walked in and our, just Ben and I, we left the other two sleeping in the parking lot with our mountain bikes and we walked in there and I uh, was in with this doctor within 20 minutes really funny she says to me she goes do you want a scar and I said well I mean I don't know I don't I don't, I don't care but no she goes good I'll stitch you up because if so-and-so stitches you up you're gonna have a bad scar she's really funny so she cleans up my eye she puts the stitches in she pulls them all out because she used the wrong sutures puts them back in again um, gives me a shot. She goes, I'm going to give you a painkiller. And I said, no, I don't want a painkiller. I still have like a hundred K of biking to go today. I don't want any, any painkiller and I don't need a painkiller. And she goes, well, it's a Voltaren, which is a, um, anti-inflammatory here in North America. It's a, it's a, it's a cream you put on your skin, but they take the active ingredient and they have it in a an injectable. Okay. So Ben's watching this and he says, oh, can I get a shot of that too? Because we're always in pain, right? And she goes, yeah, sure. So she loads up another needle, hits him. And then he says, would you be able to restock our first aid kit that we use in Laval's face? Because we'd used a bunch of gauze to stop the bleeding and band-aids. And she goes, yeah, no problem. So anyways, stitches is up. Voltaire for both of us. Restocks your medical kit. You know, recommends where to go when I get to Cape Town when I'm, because Janet flew up there to go for wine, whatever. And then off we go. I'm leaving the hospital. There's a so there's a little guy sitting in a cage room. And I said to him, I said, uh, I guess I need to pay. And he said 110. And I thought he meant 110 US dollars. I just thought that makes sense for an emergency room visits, sutures and all this Volterran for two and all that. Well, it was 110 Rand. It was $8 Canadian. So I, I, I handed over 110 Rand and off we were going again. Race was back on and no penalty for using the cell phone because the cell phone was just us front loading medical care when we got to, and we stayed, we stayed on course the entire time. So uh, yeah, we kept on going. So I, I raced with this 
know, sutures and these band-aids over my face and uh, I looked pretty tough, but it, it wasn't that bad and, and we kept on going. You look like you've healed up pretty well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. You had a good shiner, though. Yeah, it was uh, it was a good one. And then I just um, uh, pulled the stitches out the last couple of days. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And now I see that there's a Mark Wahlberg movie made about adventure racing. Really? Have you seen this? Yeah. And it's and he's wearing he's wearing adventure race World Series jerseys. So he's um, you'll see it. It's all over the Internet. He's wearing uh, uh, this is the, the race organization. He's re- wearing that jersey. It's been all over the Internet. Um, yeah, so they're making a race about adventure racing or um, a movie about adventure racing. So you watch adventure racing is going to blow up now. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's cool. Okay. So would you do it again? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well now we're, 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 um, we've been asked to form a team representing Canada called Expedition Canada and Ben's going to be leading this up. He's going to be the principal there and, uh, I don't know why, but he's asked me to uh, to race on the team. He's a kind fellow, so I'm by far the oldest guy on the team. We had, we had, uh, so I'm I'm I turned 55 the night before the start of the race. So we've got somebody born in the 60s. Yeah, thanks. Somebody born in the 60s, which is me, 68. We had Dave, who was born in 1978. We had uh, um, Ben, who was born in 1986, I think, and then we had. Uh, MP was born in 1993. So we had, we had 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s represented on our team was, was kind of cool. A lot of different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But I was really happy. Like I had no, no issues at all. I didn't have, you know, other than the crash, nothing. I mean, blisters, I had, uh, some pretty serious blisters. That was kind of my fault. I think I could have handled my feet better. But when you do these types of distances, you have to really look after your body. Like it's, um, it's so critical. I mean, you are, you're always on the edge. Your immune system is completely flattened by this not sleeping and racing constantly. And you're being exposed to heat and cold and it just feels good. Like you get out of there and, um, it's amazing the fatigue and, uh, that sets in. It took a, probably a good, you know, a good week where you don't go up as flight of stairs and go like, what the hell is wrong with me? Amazing, amazing, deep, deep, uh, into your bones, uh, fatigue. So we, um, we got back, uh, I got back to, from the race, uh, on, we finished, I think it was on the 27th. I flew out on the 29th to Cape town and then spent a week in Cape town, but I was able to, you know, run up table mountain and lion's head and do some trail running and hit the gym and, and that was really good. And now I'm back at it again. But um, you just got to keep at it, or you're going to lose all that fitness that you uh, that you gained. I lost probably about I don't know eight pounds in the race, but I've gained it back again. So it was good. Yeah, yeah. Wow, dude, that's crazy. Was that the longest you'd raced? I know you've done yeah. expeditions for lo- yep. much longer than that. Obviously, you were on the Atlantic for what seventy four days or something. Yeah, uh, 50, 53 days, but no, but yeah, I mean, the Atlantic is n- n- like physically compared to this. This is like, you're not racing. Yeah. You're racing. Like you're full on, like, like you're, and, and then we also, we also have tow systems, like where we have a toe, we have like a retractable leash under my seat. And if anybody in the team started to slow down, then I would tow, or we have a, um, a, a, a 
a little piece of technical line on the back of my backpack. And during a trek, if somebody was slowing down, then I would tow. So it's a, it's a whole different world. It's, um, it's, um, it's tough. Like it's, it's a, it's the ultimate endurance sport, I'd say. Well, I've never done anything like that, but I, I know that from smaller sample sizes that I, I definitely ebb and flow in and out of sort of emotional low points and then emotional, like there's some pretty big peaks and valleys emotionally. Did you, are you going through that for like the whole nine days where you're like, what the, why the hell am I here? So yeah. I can't, I can't believe I get to be here. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, you go through, I didn't go through any emotional lows. I went through a lot of highs just because of the ridiculous scenery. Like just like you're running along and there are monkeys running across in front of you or wildebeest or orcs or kudu or springbok or, you know, bat. like it's just the scenery is, it's truly hard to describe how stunning the sunrises and the sunsets were and what we saw there. So that to me was like this injection of, of just like, how am I so lucky to be here? And I would, I would, we'd be racing. I'd say, guys, take a look around. We're never going to be here again. Like we've got to remember this moment. Um, I didn't have any lows. I had some, like you go into real pain, like you have some serious pain sometimes. Uh, my feet sometimes were, um, like biblically bad pain, but you just, you can't do anything about it. You just have to keep racing. And, uh, and then I've done, enough stuff that I know that, you know, you, when you get off your bike after you know 18 hours of riding and then you jump into your runners that are wet and you, you're going to do an 80 K trek or 60 K trek. Um, you know, that at the beginning, your feet are going to feel like you want to chop them off. And then eventually your body starts to adapt to the pain. And a couple hours later, they're just sort of these, you know, mushy, chronically sore things on the bottom of your ankles and you just keep on going. So, but yeah, I mean, you could go, um, you know, fatigue, especially when you sleep deprivation is, is really interesting. You hallucinate. I had a lot of hallucinations. You're so tired that you can, you can, uh, start to fall asleep running and you can start to fall asleep technical mountain biking, which is hard to believe until you've been there, but you can, you can start to drift off. And, uh, you know, that's when accidents happen. I, I, I wasn't falling asleep when I crashed. It was strictly pilot error. But, uh, yeah, you, you, you get to times where you have to shake your head because you're, you're, you know, you're ripping down a, uh, a mountain road in South Africa, at, you know, 40 kilometers an hour on your mountain bike and you're starting to fall asleep, which is incredible that you're able to, to, to dip that low. But what Pete, what gets you is when that sun comes up. So we operate when you're sort of the two o'clock till five o'clock in the morning thing, we're, we're in what's called your window of circadian low. It's something we learned in aviation, the wackle. So that's when you're at your lowest point where your body wants to sleep. Your body's trying everything to get you to sleep. And you go into this, into this fatigue hole where you can't even keep your eyes open and you're, and you're, you know, you're starting to, you're starting to see things and hallucinate and you're starting to dream as you're mountain biking or you're, you know, track crossing a river or something you're starting to lose it and then the sun comes up above the horizon and as soon as that sun is bright enough that you can kind of feel it it's like it's almost like a shot of some type of drug and then you're wide awake again and i mean wide awake compared to where you were yeah it's incredible and then the heat of the sun because you're 
just about every day we were hypothermic at night, just about every night. And then, and then you know that by 7.30, you're going to be ripping your clothes off because you're boiling hot. But just that sunlight coming up. And I alluded to it earlier out in the northern hemisphere. We don't have much sun right now. It's tough on your on your general overall feeling well-being. But when that sun pops up above the horizon, you go from, I'm sleeping on my bike, technical mountain biking, to, okay, I'm alive again. And you just have to know to push through that because at that three o'clock in the morning, you want to lay down and like under a cacti and just go to sleep. So, Dude, that's crazy. Crazy. I'm not surprised you said yes though. I've gotten to know you. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And I, you know, my training was really good, Pete. Like you saw that I was mixing a lot of, uh, you know, big bike rides with big runs up in the mountains. And that's exactly what you need to do. You need to be able to transition from, biking to to riding and then to hammering downhill and and that type of training was perfect i didn't have a single cramp i didn't like nothing i i felt super strong which is which is really nice because no matter what you know you hit 40 oh my god i'm getting old you hit 45 you hit 50 i just hit 55 and you know sometimes in you know when you're laying there in at night you're going you know do i still have what it takes and, and it was good to uh to be able to mix it up and uh and answer that question i would say pretty definitive yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah it was good well, dude hats off to you and your teammates that's uh that's a crazy accomplishment even to get across the finish line obviously yeah great team great team mp the the girl on our team she's a designer for mount equipment co-op she lives in squamish with her boyfriend zach who is our, our media guy he builds custom outdoor vans which is wicked um, she'd only done one expedition race, but holy shit, was she strong. Like she was just like their ever ready bunny, just or energizer bunny. She just kept on going, like kept on going. And sometimes we'd be, you know, 20 some hours into a gr- gruesome mountain bike with, I don't know how many thousand meters of elevation. And I'd be going up a steep pitch and she'd come up beside me and pass me. Like she is really strong. So hats off to, uh, to MP and then and then Ben Kwiatkowski, the guy who was our team captain, his um navigating skills. <laughs> holy cow was like it was like a bloodhound finding these things. It was incredible. And then Dave, Dave's an experienced adventure racer, very experienced. He's a Canadian who spent 20 years in Australia and uh, done a ton and he was just incredible. So yeah, I just I I was very fortunate to be on such a fantastic team. It's interesting how the everybody's different experience, physical strengths, um mental emotional strengths all of those things how they all need to inter interlock to get the four people across the finish line because that's the dynamic it doesn't matter how strong you are right yeah and you and yeah and then it's the psychological thing the teamwork thing which is so interesting like you know one point we'd been in this rain and fog and battling through this bush and we're trying to find our way to the top of this humongous waterfall that we had to repel down in the middle of the night and uh yeah you just there's no pausing you just get on that rope and off you go and you don't even know you're just descending in the dark beside a roaring waterfall and you go down i think it was a 90 meter rappel it was gigantic and it was pitch black so i couldn't see anything but now that i've seen because we we got through it at night when i see teams that had gotten through it during the day it was spectacular like it was a serious waterfall and uh People can go to the uh, Expedition Africa website to take a look at it, and uh, yeah, I mean, and then you get down to the bottom, and you're you're in this this canyon with a roaring river in it, and you have to navigate 
down the rocks in the canyon and it's slippery and you're falling and it's nighttime and it's raining. It's just super fun. Like it was a, it was super fun. Well, I appreciate you breaking it down for me now that uh, you're, well, you're back ish. You're always off somewhere, but uh, we'll, we'll try and uh, get somebody on soon and get another podcast yeah. pranked out. But yeah, I appreciate you uh, telling everybody the story. I'm sure people have been following along a little bit too on Instagram and stuff and what, yeah, I'll have to get some more stuff out. Yeah, I'll get some more info out on it, some more photos. Zach's uh, downloading all the stuff he's taken. And uh, I didn't bring a camera during the race, which I should have. I'm kicking myself because it would have been mind-blowing. Um, but I'm leaving again on December 4th. I'm going to climb the highest mountain in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda. So that'll be a good trip, too. I'll get some good content from that and something else to talk about. So, um, yeah, yeah that's the state. December 4th, you said? Yeah, I leave December 4th. I'll be back on the, uh, probably back around the 18th or the 20th from uh, Africa again. So yeah, that'll be a good one. Mountaineering in uh, in Africa, in the jungle, ice climbing, it'll be neat. <laughs> yeah, of course you are. Of course you are. All right, man. Thanks for catching up. It's great to see you. And uh, we'll do this again really soon, okay? Yeah, and I'll, uh, you and I have to dig up a guest here ASAP. Mm -hmm. We will. We will do that. And let's, uh, let's get some training it together, too. Sounds good. Thanks, Pete. Good seeing you. Ciao. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in. The best way to help spread the word about the podcast is simply by word of mouth. So if there's somebody that you know that would like what we're doing and putting out there into the world, uh, please let them know about it. If you can give us a share on social media. And it, to enter the power meter and heart rate monitor giveaway from 4i Technologies, you can send us the answer to this question. What province did the uh, what South African province did Laval's adventure race begin in? So send us that answer either on our Instagram page, which is Adventure Audio, or to Adventure Audio Podcast at gmail.com. Either one of those will get you entered. We'll do this one more week uh, or one more episode. We'll have a contest. So that's going to run over four episodes total. And then we'll pick some winners. So stay tuned for that and love to hear from you about anything else about the podcast. So Please reach out if you have anything, uh, questions or, or uh, comments, and we'll be back as soon as we can.